right, welcome back to Building a Fighter. My name is Dr. Austin Shane, sports chiropractor in Scottsdale, Arizona. With me, as always, badass strength coach in Denver, Colorado, Alex Friedman. And then we also have a special guest today, the head of strength and conditioning at the UFC PI, Mr. Bo Sandoval. Bo, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, guys. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for taking it. For sure. So today we want to kind of touch on, we have that new UFC PI book that just came out. There's a whole bunch of new information you guys put out there over the last three years. Definitely want to touch on some of the stuff in there, especially regarding the workload management, which I know is something somewhat of a specialty for you, um, as well as just some different topics going around UFC and MMA strength and conditioning. Sure. So, a- Alex, you want to kick it off? Yeah, absolutely, man. I mean, um, yeah, so I interned with Bo back at the, uh, in, wow, 2019 by now. I guess it's been that long. A couple years. Um, yeah. yeah, I know, right? Time flies. <laughs> But uh, no, that was like, that was an all-star experience for me. And Bo was super influential and helped me understand a lot about high performance and and where that comes from as far as scheduling fighters and and getting meaningful strength and conditioning done, not just kind of weight room time, um, if you will, which I know, and I'll let you go into this a little bit, Bo, but as far as like time spent in the weight room versus like quality adaptations and quality workout put in i feel like that's a big issue to address with mma in particular is the like what is grinding versus what is actual meaningful work um so i guess what what did you have to say about that yeah i mean i I just say like conscientiously that's always in the in the back of my head and i I try to like make that a principal thing with our crew at the pi is it you know try to eliminate as much filler as possible. Um, You know, if we've got good intent and directive around something and it's directly tied to an objective that we're after, then absolutely it should be in there. Um, But really trying to constantly reevaluate and reassess what we're doing and what's going on so that we can constantly trim the fat off of the unnecessary. Um, You know, it's a, it's a very commonly, overly trained sport um really easy to get someone in sort of that overreaching status um not to mention you know very easy to just throw things in there that just don't contribute to performance so just common kind of having a daily conscience around um identifying what some of those things may be you know priorities change over time so as you have original initiatives you know you start getting four or five weeks down the road um, some of those things start to fade. And so some of the regiment that supports them should be eliminated as well. So it's a constant reevaluation process so that you're not wasting time on things that aren't directly contributing to the here and now. Absolutely. Well, and, and that, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say with that. So when you talk about that reevaluation process, I know the PI is huge on their uh, metrics that they get those pre-training camp or pre-camp metrics that you get. Are you using those same metrics, those assessments as a way to pivot? Sometimes it's all situational. You know, there's context to, to every scenario. Sometimes we can definitely have data um, that can push us in a direction. Um, sometimes the data is not as conclusive and you have to use a little bit more of the big picture scope. You're gathering information from medical teams or from the MMA staff or from practices or um, from the fighters themselves. So feedback comes in a ton of different forms. Some of it's numerical data. Some of it is um, conversations and sharing of information from the team. Um, But, you know, constantly having a mind to trying to employ that information, I think is the key. We get lost in the grind quite a bit. Um, I, I say so for myself as well. One of the our saving graces is we have a catch up meeting um, once, sometimes twice a week with our staff. And as we're going through these catch up meetings, it, you know, one person's scenario may not be on the top of my mind, but through another staff member bringing it up from a different perspective, say one of our dietitians is bringing it up from a fueling perspective, it will get me then to start reevaluating, you know, kind of getting in that process. Oh, wait, what's let me see. And I'll pull things up. Where are we at in that plan? Does it still make sense? Um, or are we starting to derail a little bit? Um, or is there just a sharper way that we can refine our approach right now? Um, and so, you know, that's kind of our saving grace. We've got a couple of different reminders going on on top of our own initiative daily. Uh, so that helps quite a bit. And you know, you're constantly kind of round in the wagon, circling the wagons to keep everybody corralled. Um, which you have to when you're dealing with the, the numbers and the varieties that we're dealing with. 
um, and at different, you know, service levels. We have some that we're, we're intimately delivering services with. We have some that we're acting as a long distance liaison with, um, and then everything in between. So, uh, it's easy for if, if you don't have those frequent conversations within the team, it's easy for some to slip through the cracks. Yeah, I know that especially like at the PI, there's like all the bells and whistles and you have the whole team surrounding you and everything when you're offering that that in-person intimate uh, service. But for a lot of people like that don't have access to some of the technology or don't have access to the, the dietitians or the PTs that they see regularly, what are some things as like a skill coach or as a strength coach that you can kind of look and see to assess and uh, pivot when you need to within, you know, athletes training or a training camp? Sure. I mean, first and foremost, they're trying to get better at fighting. So observing the fighting is a pretty critical (laughs) one. I had a great conversation with a a pretty well-known coach from Sweden who's worked with a lot of high-level guys, um, K1 kickboxers, as well as some of our crew in the UFC as well. He's one of the brighter minds that, that I've had chats with and, He's like, you know, I don't always have, you know, he tries to use heart rate monitors and practices and things like that. And sometimes that data is, it's got holes and gaps in it. You get a lot of noise depending on those things getting ripped off or getting slapped around or whatever. Um, But he's like, man, as my measuring stick, if I don't have anything else, if, if I'm, if I'm missing things, I don't have anything else. The weekly sparring, that's the highest intensity thing, the closest thing to fighting that we're going to get right now. Um, regardless of how limited they've made the sparring, whether they're using big gloves or they're using headgear or they're starting from, you know, scenario positions or, you know, it may not be just full on live rounds or it may be live rounds in his eyes. At least I have that as a measuring stick to say, Hey, things are going pretty well right now, or that wasn't a great display of what this fighter is capable of. Let's take a look at everything and figure out, you know, where, where was the mishap? Um, so there's always that really rudimentary measuring stick, which is, you know, what's the number one thing, especially in camp, what's the number one thing we need to be good at right now? It's fighting. And not only technically, technically and tactically week by week, that should be getting sharper, but from a capacity standpoint, there should be some improvements being made week by week in terms of what they can withstand, what they can endure um, and uh, and what their recovery looks like round to round practice to practice. So those little things kind of start to paint a picture. They're, they're dropping crumbs to lead us to exactly where they're at. And it's up to us to kind of find those crumbs as a group, as a team. So you don't always have to have, you know, a force plate driven vertical jump metric that's giving you 15 different you know, data points. It's nice. It, it, it's nice. It, it really paints a full picture, um, but good quality conversations amongst um, quality professionals that all have the same end goal. Um, you can really start to put things together and make good quality adjustments so that someone can continue down a path of progression and improvement. For sure. And are you getting over to see the sparring rounds yourself or are you having like the coaches tell you secondhand? Yeah, I'll always, I'll always say that not as much as we, we should. I mean, I, we can't make every single practice every week. Um, yeah. We'll try to make as many as we can. If they're in-house, we have a lot of fighters that are now like training in-house in our place. They're, they're setting up sparring times and, and wrestling times. So we really try to get in and take a look at them. Um, my team in particular with the two guys I have with me, we kind of go on a rotation. So if we know if, if one of my guys is going over to Extreme Couture to watch sparring rounds, I'll be like, hey, I'm going to give them a list check these four guys for me. They're getting rounds today. Just give me some tidbits on how they look. Um, or I'm messaging the coaches that I know that are working with them. I'm like, Hey coach, what'd you think about today's rounds? Um, how are we looking? Are we on the right track? You know, those kind of conversations. Um, sometimes coaches can give you a ton of information. Sometimes it's just not as conclusive and that's all right as well. As long as you're having frequent conversations, some are going to be more in depth. You're going to get a lot more information. Some are not going to be as conclusive. You're just not going to get that much information. And that's, that's fine as well. It's just kind of like, Hey, nothing to report. Really. We're just kind of in the groove of training, no need to, to redirect or change anything. Um, and then there's other days like, wow, we're killing it. Whatever we're doing, let's document it. Things are going really well, you know, um, from an energy perspective, from a technical tactical perspective, from a recovery perspective, um, or it might be the direct opposite. Like we're burying them and they're getting worse at fighting. So let's figure out what what's happening. Yeah, that's no bueno. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that like multidisciplinary and communication driven like professional culture is, is something that that I saw in, in a few of my internships, but was really kind of exemplified like at the highest level at the PI, and that's. 
something that we're trying to build towards with building a fighter is get that outreach out there to help everyone know that it's a, from a support staff's perspective, it's a team effort, right? You need Austin has the chiropractic background and, and the healthcare strength and conditioning skill coach. Everybody should be working together in, in constant communication. Um, so that's something that, that I've really taken from the PI, which I mean, was again on the highest level of display there and, tried to take that out into the world to every, you know, fight gym. I just have found that with MMA, it's so kind of sporadic with the gyms and with what services they're getting from where. Um, so yeah, what have you seen from that perspective with, I mean, just different facilities. Yeah. From a performance paradigm standpoint, I mean, you're going to get different perspectives and not just within the world of MMA. I mean, even in yeah. the culture of football, you know, there's some football teams that, might highly value strength and conditioning and they don't value this other thing as much. There are others that highly value dietetics and nutrition and recovery and maybe not one thing as much. There's some that really elevate every resource that they have and use it in its entirety. Um, MMA gyms go through the same evolution. They're, they're figuring out what works for them. Um, not everyone has the time to employ everything all at once. So they're going through growth spurts. They're going through development. And every gym that you run into is at a different level of development. You know, Extreme Couture has been here for over 20 years. So it's like they've been through levels and levels and levels of development. So we've got some staffs that know how to incorporate some things. Factory X has been around. They've got fighters from, you know, Amis, entry level professional fighters up to some of, you know, some that are contending for world championships and some big promotions. So they've seen a scale of things that work and don't work. Their level of development is going to look way different than, you know, a gym that's three years old and, you know, in the middle of New Orleans that's just starting out. Um, yeah. So being able to employ everything all at once, they're going to be in different phases of the game. That's why I truly believe from a, a performance professional standpoint, I mentioned earlier when we talked about like getting in and communicating, it has to be a principle. It has to be, it has to be a guiding, you know, guideline, something that you live by every day to remember and have to chew through those conversations daily. If that's a principle, then eventually you'll be able to integrate yourself with a staff or with a team or with an athlete. Um, but if it's not a principle and it's, it's, it's not routine enough to where it's part of your daily language and your daily culture as a professional, they're not going to, they're not going to catch on to it very quickly. They're not going to, um, they're not going to understand it as part of the regiment very, very quickly. Um, and so it makes it harder to, to have that kind of environment. Well, and it's cool because what you're saying, it makes the athlete, it tells the athlete that you actually care about them more, right. By you yeah. going out and reaching out to those coaches and trying to establish that it's only building that trust, which is, it's one of those things like, Hey, People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Sure. And you know, that gets that instant buy-in from those athletes, which is awesome. You know, ultimately we're trying to go in and win fights. So that that is 100 percent down to the yep. athletes. So when people say athlete centered, that is one they're they're the bullseye. Yep. Unfortunately, yep. to get to the bullseye, you've got to be able to to work and integrate with their team before you're ever going to have any sort of influential effect over their performance. Um, so, you know, I always say, yeah, there's a bullseye, but you got to get within striking distance of it. And that's the team. Yeah. Um, yep. so without that, then you're, you're going to be shooting blanks in the dark. Yeah, absolutely. There's and the, I think there's always that ego component that goes along with it, too, you know, and maybe it's not like even a, like a conceited ego thing, but it's like. You know, I'm a strength conditioning coach. I'm doing my thing. I'm on my grind. You know, I don't have time to text and communicate or like get to every practice like you're saying. But, but like you said, I like a lot what you said, make it a principle, make it, you know, an everyday part of your job to check in, communicate with, you know, whoever and whatever you need to do to create value in your service, but also like also saying, help the athlete understand that that's your end goal is getting them to win fight, to be healthy, to um, everything that they need. Sure. You know, there's nothing wrong with having an ego. You know, we, we earn our ego through our education, through cutting our teeth and gaining experience. You know, you earn that. Um, unfortunately, we have to know how to employ it. And it's like, <laughs> When it comes time to be a service provider, uh, you know, whether you looked at the job description correctly or not, you're a service provider. So to provide service, um, you're really not ever going to be in a position to drive your ego. Otherwise, you're, you're not providing service at that point. You're directing and demanding. And that's really not a great kind of directive for a supportive service provider. Yeah. Um, there are very rare instances where we'll be in a position to drive direction that way. We're going to do it in a supplemental 
um, supportive type of way in in some sort of cohesive way with the fight team, with the coaches, with the medical staff, with the whoever. Um, so I, I feel like sometimes people just they misread that job description a little bit. Um, it's not a Bo Sandoval head of shut up and do exactly what I say. It's <laughs> it's Bo Sandoval here to help as a carpenter in any way that I can to build and repair and fix things as much as possible so we can be productive. No, yeah, I think that's spot on. So talking about ego, right? Let's let's go to ego of the fighters because everybody knows the weight room is a place that you can build a bunch of confidence, right? You can help build up that athlete in a, in a great way. How do you go about that for the combat athletes that confidence is so important in their in their sport? Number one is daily you've got to be you got to be looking for their light bulb to kick on. Sometimes that light will kick on through aggression. It might kick on through adrenaline. We can find adrenaline dumps in training in a hundred different ways. Sometimes it's through the learning process. And as I've worked more and more with older fighters, experienced fighters, fighters that have 30, 35 fights under their belts, they're not as entertained anymore by the adrenaline dumps. They get those in fighting. Like that's, that's where they get that from. Um, But when the light bulb kicks on, cause they're learning stuff, you know, and it's not always that you got to show them a new trick, a new gym trick or anything like that. It's refining things that they might have been doing for 15 years and now giving them a more solid approach to performing it at a higher level. When you see those light bulbs kick on, that's where first it's kind of a kind of a foundational building block with confidence in training. Then confidence in training turns into confidence in results and then confidence in results turns into confidence for performance. It's kind of a building block approach to it. But if I never see those light bulbs kicking on, there's only, you know, so many people say all the time, like, you know, motivation will fail you. Discipline will not 100% true. The day that that light bulb is not kicking on, they're relying on motivation and that is not going to be consistent every single day. Where the way I can get them to get married to discipline is through learning and progress. And that's where I'm constantly looking for those light bulbs kicking on daily. You know, when someone's vibing with what you've got them doing, you know, when someone's vibing with the path that you're leading them down, you can, there's a lot of body language. There's a lot of conversation that goes on that will give you telltale signs that we're walking down the right path and they're feeling great about it. Um, the same way, you know, the second that we're falling off track um, and, and something is not quite right with the, uh, with the harmony of what we've got going on, then it's time to evaluate, pivot, start figuring out, okay, where, you know, there's a hole in the boat. Where is it? Let's stop the leaking. Yeah, I like that. Cause it's, it's individualized too, right? Cause you have an individual fighter in front of you. Like you got to find their light bulb and, and spark it, whatever it is. Like you said, whether it's the adrenaline, like the hype uh, and get up or whether it's the learning process or a, a new, a nuance to the training, but I love how individual that can be because like you said, if we turn it back on the athletes, like it's whether they're engaged in getting better or not, it's not whether I can teach an Olympic lift or whether I can run through a kettlebell circuit or or whatever methodology that I think coaches look too much inward on themselves. Like, like I'm this type of guy or I'm the whatever guy when it's really about is the athlete getting better from this training. And part of that has to be is, is the athlete enjoying or, in uh involved or intrigued by the training sure is there some kind of influence going on and we have cheat codes all around us it's up to us to kind of recognize them but you have cheat codes watching them interact with their coaches how well are they vibing with that if that's a style that they vibe with what can i pick up from that so i can employ it in my area or if they're vibing with a dietitian you know what is it about that that's going on that's that's making things click and what can i feed off of that into what i've what i've got to install um, so you can, you get cheat codes all around us. It's up to us to kind of pick them up and, and to use that to our advantage. Um, because when you can, when you can crack some of those codes quicker, you can be effective more quickly. You can get right to the good stuff more quickly, um, and essentially speed that progression of, of training and, and improvement up, you know, by 10. Yeah. For sure. And a cool, like almost like a real world application. So one of my fighters that I train is Tracy Cortez, which I think she's out by you right now, She's if I'm not mistaken. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So like something I do with her that I picked up in the gym, if you haven't found out by now, she's really big into music. Absolutely loves like reggaeton music and like Latin, like dance music. So I just always schedule her right at the end of the day. Let her pick the music. She and she goes on. There's nobody else there except for me and her. And that immediately makes the training session a thousand times better just because she's happy and she's able to get in there. So it's a cool, almost like a real world application of just just know the athlete. 
Yeah, we had um, we've had some um, some boxers from Britain that had some some big fights going on here recently um, that were in town. And and one of them walked in one day and the music was playing. He was like, oh, Bo, mate, is this your mix? I'm like, no, man, look around. It's it's one of these guys that comes in. Whoever comes in, we just let them. It's your session. You pick you pick what you want to throw on. Um, And that that boxing coach and the boxer, they were really vibing with what was on. He's like the other day they were playing shit. I don't know what it was, but it was. (laughs) It was irritating, and it's like, you're right. That can kind of change the mood and shift things. Um, we've kind of got it set up kind of like what you're talking about. You got someone coming in, you'll you'll cater to what they've got going on. We just let them pick it. Like, hey, hook your Bluetooth, your phone up to the stereo. You play whatever you want. I'm going to make sure that we're set and we're ready to go. You kind of set the mood on your own. Um, it's pretty funny when you do that, too. You can kind of get an understanding of what kind of mood they're in because you'll have oh, yeah. someone that you know listens to multiple genres of music, and one day it might be death metal. The other day it might be something like reggae or, you know, we get a variety. Um, but it kind of tells you about, all right, what's what's really getting them going today? What, you know, and it can, again, kind of like reading body language and getting some of those cheat codes from some of their other sessions. Um, it can tell you a lot about what's going on. Sure. Absolutely. Um, did I see, by the way, this is kind of an aside, did I see that you guys added a sports psychologist or uh, some type of wing into that for your performance paradigm? Sure. We, we added two. Um, one is more of a clinical oversight position. She kind of oversees and manages and helps with um, uh, sort of, I would say like liaisoning for fighters and connecting them with one um, a psychologist that, that we do have in house. Now um, he works both with us and then he has a private practice as well. Um, but they also work with a network to help, put other fighters in contact with high quality professionals, depending on where they're at and what types of, of, of issues or things that they're dealing with. Um, so they'll kind of match, match them up by specialty, but um, you know, it was, it was probably just pretty recently after you took off Alex. I mean, cause I want to say it was late 2019. It might've been early 2020 yeah. when we got them fully rolling, but they're pretty, yeah, they're pretty embedded now. It's a huge part of our, um, of our team has been extremely helpful. Um, the insights that we get there, not to mention the amount of fighters that we may not have recognized needed those services. Then now that they know those services exist are opening up and having those conversations of, Hey, how do I, how do I have a consult with our, our psych team now? Um, so it's interesting to see some of those come out of the woodwork a little bit. Yeah, definitely. That, that was something that I've always kind of been interested in with like the most multidisciplinary approach with my master's degree in like sociology and psychology is just interesting to see that, that, I mean, as we were talking about earlier, like not every gym can do everything in every facet, but it's interesting to see where and when those services can actually make a big difference, uh, for an athlete because, uh, yeah, I'm a huge believer that they, they can be impactful because especially in fighting, it's such a psychological sport. What's what's not one or totally, two? Not to totally dilute what I do for a living, but man, I, I have a hard time not putting psychology and nutrition kind of at the top of the priority list okay. when it comes to performance. I mean, you got to be fueled and your head's got to be in the right place before you can get any of the, any of the optimal out of any of this other shit that we do. Yeah. Um, so it, yeah. It, and it's still, there are two ideas, two, two um, services, two concepts that just continuously in all f- genres of sport gets thrown on the back burner. Yeah. Um, oh, for sure. Um, well, I was going to say what, what are like for the people that are on the fence. So maybe like a Bellator athlete or athletes that don't have access to the PI if somebody's on the fence about employing a sports psychiatrist or a sports psychologist, what are some of the biggest benefits you've seen personally for these athletes that might not even have known they needed help? Yeah. I mean, one of the, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's concise. It's a concisive like plan. You're organizing a plan and a regiment and approach to your thoughts, to your, your attitudes, your moods, your perception of training and performance, your, perception and coping mechanisms with failure and success so you know we regiment everything else right we regiment food we regiment training we regiment rest and sleep but no one necessarily has taught us how to regiment our thoughts and our demons in our head 
um, regiment our fears and our anxiety around training and preparation of, of being good or not being good, being good enough or not good enough. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's essentially what that service can help do. It, it's systems and regiments for better strategizing and employing your thoughts when appropriate and learning how to refine them, learning how to learning how to find positive outcomes, learning how to reflect appropriately um, so that you can then find positive outcomes from some of your failures or learn how to reflect and grab a hold of things that really kind of steered your boat towards ultimate success. Um, so, it, you know, it's really an organization of uh, a, a um, more structured regiment of dealing with the psyche of what goes on between the ears, um, just as we regiment every other physical aspect of the game. Damn, you're kind of yeah. so I think I might need a psychologist right after that. <laughs> I mean, we all do, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah absolutely. You, you start talking, you start walking in the world of balancing, you know, work and structure with family and, you know, um, yeah. politics and all the other shit that's going on right now, you know, uh, through the evolution of life, every, every generation, they've dealt with different um, issues around that. And, you know, ultimately you're your own savior. You're your own sort of uh, CEO and understanding how to manage all those things. Just because someone may not see it every single day, everybody's dealing with it. Your parents are dealing with it. Your coaches yeah. are dealing with it. Your best friends are dealing with it. Um, and fighters are definitely dealing with it. You know, not to mention they're, they're trying to be professional athletes. They're trying to score more than the other opponent. They're trying to climb up the rankings. They're trying to wear more belts than the next guy um, trying to live a legacy. And so um, there's going to be some stuff jumping around in between their ears that, that definitely gets in the way. There's going to be roadblocks. Yeah, absolutely. I think like, like you're hitting on the reflection and self-awareness is, is huge. Like even stepping away from, you know, MMA and fighting, like that's been something that's you know changed my life. Once I started thinking that way or trying to better organize how I thought about myself or how I thought about what I was doing next and, and organizing it that way. But yeah, that's crazy that I think fighters put a lot of, I mean, and obviously they put a lot of stress and uh, weight on their shoulders to perform, right? Because, you know, it's an individual sport. You're out there alone and we've been through it with wrestling and everything else. I don't think there was one single match in my wrestling career where I didn't have butterflies or I wasn't anxious before the match. So mm -hmm. uh, I think as individual sports and mixed martial arts, they, you put so much pressure on yourself to succeed because there is such a low threshold for failure, you know, guys with, you know, four losses and then all of a sudden they're not, good anymore yeah it's crazy yeah it's the sport is not very tolerant for the ups and downs of of success you know it, it's almost like we've almost pre-painted a narrative where someone has to be undefeated and continuously climbing to wear a belt and it's like well no actually we've got a lot of great examples where people have taken a step backwards and spent the next couple of years refining and climbing their way back up and and really earning a title or, or contention um but yeah it's some of the narrative that the public sort of paints it's some of the narrative that sells when it comes you know to visibility Emotions, and, yeah. and social media and things like that. It's like, you know, they want to see the, the perfect one that's unscathed climbing all the way to the top. And we've only seen a couple of those in our lifetime. So, um, but it puts a lot of pressure on the other ones, not to mention there's not a hand, but when these fighters, you know, they're, they're signing professional um, contracts at 21 years old or 20 or whatever. Um, if you're not equipped with life skills at that point, which a lot of them are not, now you've got to accumulate that as you're going through the rigors of getting ready for fights. So if you don't know how to cook, if you don't know how to take care of yourself, pay your taxes, um, you know, write home every now and then, if you don't know how to do all those things, all that shit just comes compound, becomes compounding pressure, especially up to the point where now you're like, Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm in contention. I'm going to really kind of seal the deal here. I'm going to focus on my fight just in time to realize that I actually suck at all this other shit in my life. <laughs> it's really causing me a lot of anxiety and pressure. And I, and I actually can't do a good job performing right now because of it. Yeah. Oh my yeah. God. Real life gets in the way so much of the time. Right. And it's like, <laughs> that's crazy. The, the maturation process is exactly you said, like it's the wild West when you're 21 or when you finish your career and you're trying to get into MMA, it's like, getting a fight. Like, I hope I can get a fight. I hope I have a good coach. I hope I have, you know, somebody that has my back when we're looking at contracts, because, you know, I wouldn't know what to look at if I was looking at a fight contract. hundred hey, percent. That, that's what a good manager's for. Yeah. If you have a good manager, <laughs> good being the key word. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So something I want to talk to you a little bit about Bo is, uh, 
just the we'll talk about workload management um, and how you out of camp versus in camp kind of set up your training for the athletes. Because I know a lot of the times, like I feel like I've listened to a couple of different podcasts where you were featured on um, in preparation for this. And I feel like building a fighter and you have a very similar methodology out of camp, you become a better athlete in camp, you become a better fighter and like almost like one of those thoughts, but how do you, as far as actual workloads schedule out your weeks? Yeah. So out of camp, you got to kind of, it has a priority tree just like we do in camp and you got to figure out kind of what those priorities are. Um, You know, we have, they're all over the spectrum in terms of we have the chronic, you know, red flag weight maker. We have um, someone that just is the chronic uh, ghost athlete out of camp. They just don't appear, you know, they, they try to disappear and, and just wander off. And so you've got to really figure out what, what is the priority? You know, we spend some off camps just teaching someone how to be an off season athlete. You know, what is a routine and a regiment off season look like? From a psychological standpoint, it's very easy for them to get regimented when they've now signed a contract. It's like, oh, I'm working now. I'm on the clock. Yeah. When they're not, sometimes it's like, well, I don't really know what I should be doing. And no one's really making me do anything right now. So, I, you know, what do I prioritize? So we do spend time on on saying, OK, objectively, what are we going to spend our time on? There's nothing in the near future. We could potentially have four to six weeks with no um, commitment to anything. So what, what is going to be the low hanging fruit? What are the things we're going to do to improve our performance lives as a professional athlete? Um, and so once you kind of trim through that, you get through that and you, you understand, okay, I've now either missed or been at risk of missing weight, you know, nine of my 11 professional fights, but that's a problem. So, so what are we doing to put ourselves in position to make that not a problem anymore? Um, and some of it is just routine activity. What can we do to establish routine activity out of camp? How many practices are you skipping compared to what you're doing in camp? Um, and what can we replace them with? Is it technical practices? Is it, you know, they get, they, they get worried about mileage, rightfully so. You don't need to do a ton of live rounds outside of camp. You do need to do some, um, what's in a responsible repo- approach. And then what can we do in a controlled environment to replace some of those live rounds? And this is where we can get creative with our regiment. Um, so some of it is not necessarily a physiological goal. It's a behavioral goal. I'm, I'm trying to uh, establish a behavioral culture around being a full-time athlete out of camp. Then once we get through some of that stuff, now maybe we get into the nuts and bolts of the regiment um, and what we're prioritizing and, you know, out of camp is an outstanding opportunity to build a bigger gas tank, to build a bigger capacity of work, um, whether it be muscular work, mechanical work, or on the cardiovascular end of the spectrum. Um, and some of that has to do with obviously their fight style and has to do with, you know, where they're at competition wise, what type of competition are they seeing? Are they in that level where they're just technically above and beyond everyone that they're seeing right now? Um, or are they the ones that are, you know, neck and neck technically, and they need to improve their physical skills to be able to keep, to keep up. Um, so in terms of like the workload part of it, number one, I, I still believe we need to prioritize fighting out of camp. You still need to be getting good at fighting. So what are you doing to fill those gaps? And then as a practitioner, what are we doing to harmonize with that type of training? If someone's like, Hey, I'm a striker. I've really got to use my off camp time to get better at my wrestling grappling. Well, I don't give a shit if you got a fight booked or not. Wrestling's hard. So what are you implementing wrestling wise? What does it look like? And then now what can I sprinkle in to accommodate that wrestling? building capacity for wrestling, building durability for wrestling. Um, you know, that's, that's the kind of the, the regiment road that I'll go down and constructing. Um, and then, you know, w- when people look at like, they want to know, okay, how many sessions are you doing compared out of camp compared to in camp? A lot of times we're doing the same amount of sessions, the same amount of training units per week. The biggest reduction that I see, whether it's organic or because we've, we've intuitively constructed it that way is the reduction of live rounds, live wrestling rounds, live jujitsu rounds, live sparring rounds. Um, that's where the reduction comes in. Um, okay. I have some fighters that they don't spar out of camp at all. Some of them might spar once a month. You know, it, it, it's all kind of different. Um, and then we can build training to institute different levels of intensity and volume to either replace um, or to build upon, you know, what the, what is established in terms of capacity around some of those live rounds. Um, so it's a little bit different from fighter to fighter. 
once we go into camp, there's no doubt about it. The frequency of live rounds is going to increase for some by 50%, for some by 80%. And so now when it comes to the frequency of my higher intensity live rounds, that starts to drop. Sometimes it's in frequency. Sometimes it's in the volume of it. Um, I'm a big believer in small doses of venom. It's kind of a, a, a term I've actually taken from Lauren Landau over the years. But, um, you know, if you want someone to keep, keep a quality, to retain a quality, you've got to tap into it every now and then. So even in camp, when we know, okay, I, I don't need to be doing 45 minutes of high metabolic work, knowing that this dude's wrestling three times a week, he's sparring twice a week, um, he's three weeks out from a fight, like, I, I don't need to do that. Yeah. But I can employ four minutes of it, or I could employ eight minutes of it um, once a week or twice a week. You know what I mean? I'm not simulating a 15-minute fight like maybe I would be doing outside of camp. Okay, we're going to do – we're going to accumulate 18 minutes worth of work at this intensity level so that we can build capacity towards a fight time frame. When we're in camp, it's more of I need to tap into it just enough to complement what we're doing Mm -hmm. and to retain some of those qualities that we spent our off camp kind of refining and building. Um, Especially if it's someone where you're building new physical qualities and attributes out of camp, it's something new to their persona. It'll diminish even quicker because it's new, right? So whether as you got, you got Randy Couture, you know, in his 35th professional fight, um, you know, his wrestling capacity is not going to go away if I don't do a little bit of metabolic work. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, but if yeah, I got yeah. you know someone like an Emil Meek who's added wrestling in his last two years of training, um, if I take someone like that and I remove that metabolic aspect, he his returns could diminish because that's yeah. not what he's built his his total body of work on. So you kind of look at their training history to help you paint a picture on what um, attainable attributes are, what retainable attributes need to be um, and where they fall on that prioritization list. No, I I like that a lot because it's almost like a a sports specific, like training residuals approach, right? I think a lot of people are familiar with the training residuals, like Nick Winkleman or whatever sports science you want to put out. But like you look at the athlete's body of sports specific work and that's the energy system that they're going to be great at because that's what they do at practice every day. That's what their, like you said, their body of work consists of. So I, I like that um, filtering into the priorities type of talk. And, and this was kind of some of the feedback I got when I turned in my eight week program and my eight week fight camp uh, that I did with Matt Crawley and uh, Kyle Larimer, two year guys, awesome guys. Um, but having those priorities set and then going after those priorities, some of the feedback they gave me was like, I was trying to do everything at once. I was trying to manage weight. I was trying to get this athlete stronger and more powerful and build the gas tank in an eight week time frame. Right. So managing those priorities and then having like a, a realistic plan to attack that. But I like that you take it to a sports specific because we're always trying to get better at fighting type of idea. Yeah. 100%. And and what you'll find too, through experiences, you know, let's say you build a program like that and you've got six different variables. Um, what you will find is two or three of those variables will complement each other. They'll, yeah. they'll, they'll work well with each other and you'll be able to retain them. Some others might be a little bit contradictory. And so I just kind of put them in the back seat. I just kind of make a note, put them in the back seat and later on, once we've moved past this time frame, say the fight has happened, it's over. I'm going to go back and I'm going to look at those and be like, all right, now when's the appropriate time? It could be now. It could be, okay, I need to progress them through three weeks of training. And then we're going to get after that. Um, so you don't forget about them. You know, they're, they're definitely important. We just not may not be able to, to uh, hammer down all those nails at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Cause and in, in camp specifically, you look at like, we got to make weight and we got to be able to fight. Right. So we got to be able to last the whole duration of the fight and we got to make weight. Yeah. So you have to kind of, again, prioritize based on those requirements. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you don't make weight, you don't make money. Um, if you're, if you're not healthy, your, your percentage of, of winning, it goes down dramatically. Yeah, so, 100%. you know, are we going to make weight? Are we healthy? If not, okay, where does that, you know, where, where do we prioritize is it? One or two, where is it? And then what's right underneath it that will contribute towards performance and help alleviate those two pressures. Um, you know, that's always going to be kind of the flow of the prioritization chart. No, and, and we talked last week actually about like off-camp planning and off-camp programming for conditioning. And, and we were, that was like one of the biggest points we hit on. Like if you do set some of those behavioral goals and you accomplish that out of camp and we have a little more handle on that, then 
those priorities can get bumped down where it's not, you know, a fat camp or we're not just trying to make weight. Like if you have that somewhat in check, we can focus on some other higher priority things that's going to help you win the fight more than just making weight. Sure. And, you know, I mean, we're always going to get snuck up on, right? You're always going to get popped with that. Hey, I got a really important one. I just got offered. It's four weeks out. And it's like, oh, shit. Like, you know, (laughs) maybe we are within striking distance and we just got lucky. Or maybe we're going through one of those growing pains where we're trying to learn how to train off season. And they're like, hey, they just gave me a top 15 opponent. It's my first one. It's four weeks away. I have to do this. Yeah. You know, and you're, you're, you know, you're forced into one of those situations. It definitely happens a lot. Um, but from a cultural standpoint, we want to, we want to prepare and we want to shift the culture around training the other way where they're kind of always within striking distance because they have good off season behaviors and rituals around being a professional athlete. Yeah. My goal for my guys, something I tell them is, Hey, we're going to hashtag stop fat camp 2021. No more fat yeah. camps for any fire ready guys. You know, we tell a lot of people, we try to eliminate the language of an eight week camp. We tell them it's a 52 week camp. Um, there's parts of it where you're, you're getting ready for fighting. And then there's parts of it. You're getting ready to prepare to be able to fight that that's yeah. different. Um, but yeah, you're a 52 week athlete, not an eight week athlete. It's crazy. That's like they're professional athletes or something. They're getting <laughs> yeah. paid to do it. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> yeah. Uh, another thing I know because, so your background at university of Michigan, um, and with the Olymp- different Olympic sports and Alex had told me your background in Olympic weightlifting, do you use any Olympic lifts when you're training the athletes, um, or any variations of them or derivatives? Sure. hundred percent. I mean, in terms of being able to express explosive power in short periods of time, it's one of the best tools in the toolbox. Um, like anything else, it's got, you know, there's an appropriateness into, um, into when to install it. And, um, and you've got to have athletes, one, that are interested in utilizing it. Um, you know, we've got a lot of different ways to skin that cat. So yeah. if someone's genuinely not interested in learning that skill, then I'm going to show them a different way. Um, of doing it. I'm not going to, you know, spend six weeks trying to sell them on how magnificent weightlifting is. You know, I've, yeah. I went through, you know, eight years of school and another 15 years worth of experience to understand how valuable that can be, um, including feeling it myself. You know what I mean? So I don't yeah, expect yeah. them to go through that. They're trying to fight somebody. Um, <laughs> but if there is an interest and they're, they're all about it and we have the, the movement literacy to be able to teach it to them, then Absolutely. Um, I have some fighters that snatch. I have some fighters that clean and jerk. I have some fighters that do um, very small derivatives of those things. It's really after the, the adaptation that we're after. Um, and, and most of the time that decision tree comes from, you know, I'm either after some sort of velocity component or I'm after some sort of like maximum strength speed type of type of thing. Um, and again, there's, there's obviously other ways we know through things like accommodating resistance and, and different types of ballistic lifting. There's other ways you can do that. It just happens to be one of my favorite ways. Yeah, absolutely. I think it goes back to what you're saying earlier. Like, is that what piques the athletes, you know, interest? Are they going to turn the light bulb on when Olympic lifting comes because it is a new challenging skill that they can get better at. And, and like, I've been training a rugby team for however long. And like, while I was in a weight room that we couldn't do any Olympic lifting because of that's our staff psychology or staff, um, philosophy or whatever but then like i introduce you know a clean and jerk progression and these guys are like off the walls they love doing that because that's what they've seen everybody do and that's what what excites them and so it's just another read that you can make as a coach like is this going to be an applicable method in in this setting right now or is a different avenue like a trap bar jump or whatever going to help you out sure yeah totally um but yeah that's that's a perfect cue for the whole light bulb concept you know right away when you say hey we're going to practice racking the bar in this position you know does that what's that face look like when you show them that like you know um is it hey i've actually had three wrist surgeries on this side or i broke this this um radius and ulna blocking a head kick like you know that right away is gonna be like you know i'm not really excited about that okay here's, here's this other thing we can do instead um, and there is a varieties, a variety of ways. Ultimately, it's what are we trying to get done? Are we trying to move heavy things right. really fast? Are we trying to move moderately things really fast? Um, are we trying to move really heavy things um, slightly fast? You know, what are we accentuating? You know, that, that's really what it boils down <laughs> yeah. to. Now, let's go pick the right tool to be able yeah. to do that. Yeah. 
And so I guess with MMA athletes and with some of the common injuries being in like the hand and the foot and in different areas, what are your favorite I mean, places to pivot? If you see hands are jacked up or if you see surgeries or I guess a, another big one is going to be lumbar spine or, or what are you, I guess, some of your go-tos as far as pivoting for things? Sure. I mean, like lower body strength, I mean, if, if we can squat them, we're going to squat them. If I can't support a barbell across the back, then maybe a front squat might be a better option. Um, one thing that I always try to do, especially if we're in learning curves off camp, I'll try to teach them every variety I can, even if it's yeah. only in there as a supportive accessory. So we might use a front squat as an accessory to a back squat just because I want that in their toolbox in case I need it later on. So I want them to be well-versed in terms of what they're equipped with. Um, but yeah, if, if you know we got some kind of torso issue, shoulder issue, we can't do either of those, we'll belt squat them. Um, or if we need to do some sort of a loaded lunge or loaded sled drag, um, whatever, whatever we need to do to avoid that place, that, that area and still be able to load the lower body. Um, when it comes to like, you know, things for the O lifts, you mentioned like a trap bar jump is definitely one of my favorites. Um, we can definitely get into some ballistics around kettlebells as well with banded swings or just high velocity swings that are heavy. I mean, that's the other things like people avoid like half body weight or three quarter body weight or body weight kettlebell swings it's like dude that's an odd implement and so is your wrestling partner he's an yeah. odd implement yeah. he's not he's not as cooperative as a barbell a barbell i yeah. can i can balance it perfectly i can load the shit out of it and put it in yeah. just the most perfect spot to be able to move it well that 200 pound kettlebell doesn't want to listen to you it doesn't want to go <laughs> in that spot so there's a relative strength requirement when it comes to that and these are some concepts I've actually picked up off of Greg Walsh out of uh, Wolf Brigade Gym, where yeah, it's helped yeah. us better accessorize some of our big barbell and compound lifts with things that are what we make, you know, we call we call them odd lifts, but it's basically with a less cooperative implement, an implement that takes more control, more positioning, more movement literacy to be able to execute it, but it's still fucking heavy. Yeah, um, yeah. And so, you know, there's a, depending on, again, what kind of adaptation, what, what, what sort of avenue are we going down? Am I after a strength response? Am I after a capacity response? Someone has trouble running. Well, um, you know, is it because I need to mechanically unload them or they're just really bad at running? If I, if I need to mechanically unload them, we can use a bike. We can use a, a Jacob's ladder. We can use a rower. Um, if they're just really bad at running, um, then maybe we can go towards something that's still pretty aggressive and mechanical, like a Versa climber. Um, they're just, you don't have to have the efficacy, the literacy of being a great runner to be able to do yeah. it. You know? Um, so you know, there's a, there, there's from the cardiovascular standpoint, I get this question all the time. People are like, what are your go-tos when you can't get out on a track? <laughs> the Versa climber and the air bike are the two. That's the number uh, one is the air yeah, dyne yeah, yeah. and the Versa climber. I mean, there's nothing as close to taxing you to a live wrestling or MMA sparring <laughs> round as the airdyne or the versa climber. Um, you know, even the, the from a cardiovascular standpoint, the most fit of the fit, you throw them on a um, on a versa climber, it will hunt their weaknesses immediately. You know, some of the most endured wrestlers and then you throw them on an airdyne. I like the airdynes that have the bigger fans on them, so I'm a big fan of the Assault uh, Elite Airbike or the Schwinn Airdyne X. Um, they have some of the biggest fans on the market and it, you know, it's not like everyone loves the assault classic. That's because it's easy to push that tiny little fan. <laughs> so you put them on the big boys and even the heavyweights, man, it's a, it's a different feeling. You can oh, cause yeah. lactate accumulation like nothing else. So that being said, when's the last time you were on a air dying XL <laughs> yesterday? There you go. All right. Nice. That's the best. So that's one thing about working with Greg Walsh at a Wolf, Wolf Brigade. There's always an air dine in our warm up. And I would say an easy 85 to 90% of the time, there's an air dine towards the end of the uh, workout that's built into yeah, some yeah. sort of strength complex because he highly values capacity around every other attribute you're building. So there's always some sort of, of an air dine um in there somewhere there it's, it's one of those like it's one of those like uh gifts when you when you find one of his workouts and it's like there's no air down today like, oh thank god like, yes. yes but you also know it's probably coming tomorrow oh god yeah that, that reminds me of our collegiate wrestling practices is like our our coach's favorite circuit was two minutes live wrestling two minutes sprint on the air dine two minutes oh. jump rope like that was yeah. that was a bi-weekly favorite like twice a week I, 
I still have nightmares about that workout <laughs> to this day. The worst. Yeah, absolutely. But no, I love what you're saying about the odd strength, like moving the heavy implements. I know Austin uses the sandbags a lot and uh, yeah. moving stuff like that because it's always puzzled me, like since day one in the strength and conditioning field, how regimented movement is, how regimented, you know, sets and reps are and things. And like, it's like, but no, I'm wrestling and my knees go over my toe, like at least 150 times a day. Yeah. You know, like, it, it just wasn't didn't logically click for me for, you know, however long I was doing my internships or whatever, but no, I, I, I like the, the odd strength at, attribute. And I'm probably going to use that terminology for. Yeah, future. man, they, they, you know, if you hear Greg talk about it, they insulate all of our fundamental movements. So, you know, yeah. if, if you can increase your midline stability by doing an offset half body weight front squat, um, it will directly contribute to your very balanced, you know, symmetrical front squat yeah. because yeah you're now better equipped on how to manage things in front of you. And they don't necessarily have to be squared and, and symmetrical with your body, um, especially when you train them heavy. And that's, I think that's where people miss is they don't ever yeah. get to the point where they're training them heavy, you know, doing a one fifth of your body weight kettlebell swing 55 times. Like it, yeah, it burns, but so does setting your nuts on fire. So it's like, <laughs> if you're going to do something where you have to pick another human being up and be violent with them, you need to do that in a controlled environment with something that's heavy or somewhat equatable to what it's going to feel like picking yeah. that person up. Yeah. That's that like middle ground of like, you know, specific developmental exercises from like a transfer of training type of sure headspace or thought that you know like that can be where our majority of our training lives it, it can be like we're taking a sport and we're just going to control a few more variables on it versus like this whole like general the specific training is trash type of debate that i think everybody goes on like there's there's a, a, lot, a lot of middle ground and it's a big gray area and a spectrum that's where things get a lot more interesting in the gym too you know like sure oh we're doing back squats again it's like no nah, we're gonna we're gonna have a you know 120 pound kettlebell that you're going to try and lift on one side of your body. Like that's yeah. fun. You know, one of, one of the ones that I've really like come to love too is a, is a kettlebell back squat and it's offset. It's on one side on one shoulder. Um, and it's pretty amazing how heavy you can squat that way, that way. Yeah. Um, the shitty part is hoisting it. It is a <laughs> mental battle. Now there's technique to it. And I've been shown a couple of effective techniques to doing it, yeah. but that's the exhaustive part. It also takes about three times the amount of time getting it into position than it does actually doing the, the, the prescribed yeah, reps of squats, squat. Yeah. Um, so it's like this, it's a pretty cool mental reversal. Cause it's like, fuck, I got to get this thing to this spot. Here's how I do it. I get it there. And then it's like, Oh, I'm this at the, the easy way. I know yeah. I can squat this. I could squat yeah. this 50 times if I needed to. And so it's kind of a reversal where it's like, if I take, you know, a 95% of my one RM back squat, I've got to go through a lot of mental preparation just to squat it. Yeah. And, and the rack and everything already kind of puts it in position to do that mm -hmm. with a kettlebell back squat. It's like the battle is getting it into position. <laughs> Yeah. And then it's like, oh, all right, now we're downhill. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So it's a cool little, it, it's just been a, a nice little uh, accessory to put in. No, absolutely. And nowadays, I mean, they're making 220, 240, 250 oh, yeah. pound kettlebells. So, um, you know, even the big boys, you can find toys to play with them. Absolutely. Well, I feel like something, as you were talking about the actually loading the athlete. I feel like the the wave of functional fitness has almost decreased people's uh, want to load an athlete, if you sure. will. They feel like they're overloading the athlete instead of, hey, we need to focus on the with something we talk about a lot is functional capacity versus absolute capacity. And but the one thing that myself included, a lot of people have an issue that, hey, absolute capacity is fucking important, right? You gotta be anybody, the stronger you are, the better you are in a sport like this, for the most yeah. part, right? Well, go, so how do you go, go ahead? I was gonna say, how do you how do you throw, how do you, I guess, balance those absolute capacity versus functional capacity? Well, one thing that we can't overlook is the said principle. I mean, it's yep. specific adaptation to impose demands. Like yep. if you're in a violent sport where someone is highly resistant to your offensive maneuver, you're trying to execute. Um, you've got to be able to train and prepare both mentally and physically to overcome that. So um, if whatever your functional scheme is, 
never comes close to those demands. Now we're getting into that realm of fillers that have no contribution to the training, which is what we opened up the, the discussion on at the beginning yeah. of the podcast. Um, and to me, you're practicing getting tired now. We don't need to practice getting tired. Like <laughs> that We can do that a million different ways. Yeah. Um, that can be better spent resting, recovering, eating, refueling, mentally preparing for the next hard bout. Um, you know, that's why the said principle is so perfect because if I'm getting ready for a chess tournament, then my, my preparation for that mentally and tactically is going to be my priority. But if I'm getting ready for NCAA championships for wrestling um, and you, you know, the type of dogs that you're going to see there, your mm -hmm. mental and physical preparation step-by-step step needs to be to prepare you for what you're going to endure. Now, I think the reason why a lot of people shy away from that, and I'm going to stab stab a little bit is, um, they don't have an understanding of how to fit those regimens in. There's a delicate balance of knowing how to fit that work in to where it's it harmoniously supports the other practices, the other things that are going on. And so a lot of those same personalities are the ones that shy away from debates with coaches that shy away from integrating themselves in uncomfortable spots in practice, in medical discussions, in recovery discussions with coaches. Um, and so, yeah, they're going to feel uncomfortable with employing something that's rigorous and heavy and demanding and loading um, on a regular basis because they don't have as great of an understanding of what's going on in the rest of the athlete's world of training. Yeah, I think beautiful because, like you said, how, like, what are we actually preparing to compete at? And I think that's an important mental battle to go with because they like said those functional people that are never loading or never actually getting any work done. Like, you know, athletes aren't going to like that either. Like I'm not coming to the, the weight room or coming to a workout just to, you know, play with some 26 pound kettlebells. Yeah. Like we we got to get to, you're going to improve the tensile strength of soft tissue. You have to stress it. You have to let it recover and you have to stress it again, harder, let it recover. It's the same thing with building some of the most durable tools that we use like hammers and knives when you're forging those things you've got to heat them up you got to beat the shit out of them you got to cool them off you got to heat them up again beat the shit out of them cool them off and then you can make this indestructible thing that can you can wield to mold other things soft tissue with the human being is the same way if you're going to increase tensile strength or their ability to produce and receive force You've got to beat the shit out of it. You've got to let it rest and recover, cool it off, and then do it again in a progressive, obviously prescribed approach that's got some tactic to it. But that's really what we're doing is we're forging machines. Yeah, absolutely. And there, there's like an, an artistry or there's a, like you said, a harmonious nature that comes with that too. Because if like, if we just endlessly repeat that process and we just keep beating the shit out of stuff, like we're just grinding it to an unuseful thing, right? We and need to ask your local knife maker, man. If, I, know, if that, I know you're big if, into that. Yeah. If that carbon balance <laughs> isn't right and you're beating the shit out of thing, it's just going to break. Yeah. Same thing well, with those athletes. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No. That's uh, something I, I, I don't know. I wrote a, blog about a while ago but like what is conditioning and what is actual energy system development versus like just grinding like that's yep. the whole type of idea yeah and the argument is you know you want to grind like that for mental preparation well if your training is accurate you can get both i can yeah, make you mentally absolutely. tough and physically prepared at the same time like that yeah. that should be happening together you shouldn't have to sacrifice one for the other oh it's a mental day i don't really give a shit what he feels like because it's a mental day it's like <laughs> well no we care what he feels like Thursday is the day where it fits in the best and it's going to be yeah. mentally fucked up for him. Like, you, know, <laughs> yeah. you can do both. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. For sure. And then uh, something that bringing it back all the way to windows of recoverability, one of your big things is talking about, Hey, having a mental day or having like a recovery day. Where do you put recovery into the workload that you were talking about? As far as do you have people train the same day as sparring where do you, obviously it's athlete dependent, right? And schedule dependent, but how do you put it into for the majority of the athletes you would say? So back to the first part of your question, like understanding. So windows of recoverability is a coin term from Omega wave. That's, that's kind of one of their copyrighted terms. It makes great sense, but essentially what you're doing is identifying when we have an opportunity to do a couple things refuel. So there's some sort of nutritional reconstruction going on, um, rest. So there's mental and biological time to be able to recover from what you've just endured. Um, all those things contribute towards 
physical recovery. So that stuff has to have an opportunity to happen. Otherwise, you're just stimulating all the time. You're all stimulus and you're no adaptation. The adaptation doesn't come until, you know, post recovery, whatever, whatever, you know, that might be. Um, And so this idea, this concept of windows of recoverability, the most fundamental thing to look at first is what does the training regimen look like? You know, if you're in the gym for six hours a day, every day, and then you're doing, you know, an hour and a half S and C bout and you're only sleeping for six hours at a time, um, you're skipping two of your meals. Well, you know, fundamentally you've just ruled out two things. You're, you're not feeding and you're not sleeping. So if everybody's like, what's the magic to recovery? First off, you've got to be good at those two things, knowing how to eat and knowing how to sleep. Those are our fundamental methods of recovering tissue. Um, and so then let's say we have all that down packed. Now, is our regiment accommodating for those two things to be done effectively? You know, do I have four or five hours in between my rigorous MMA session and my SNC session? If I do, then that SNC absolutely can happen on a technical training day, on a sparring day. If I do not, if I'm just going to cram SNC right after my sparring rounds, well, something's going to suffer. Either his mentality towards training or the training itself. Um, you're going to start diminishing because be like, fuck, I'm done sparring. I got to do this SNC thing. You either develop that or, man, I got to make this SNC. The SNC is really important to me. I just got to make it happen. But unfortunately, they just don't have the gas tank to do it at, at a high level because you just sparred for eight rounds or whatever it is. Um, so you have to have an understanding of that. And that might be to get around that a simple employment of, hey, we're not going to do our SNC work on your sparring days because this is how you train. I'm not going to alter how you train just yet. So instead, I'm going to do the easiest thing and I'm going to maneuver. I'm going to manipulate your training schedule a little bit and move your SNC around. Um, in all honesty, if we can, I'll try to get SNC in before technical training. And when I say before, we'll try to look for a four or five hour, if more, great, but a four or five hour gap between the two. Um, so they have a window of recovery between there. Um, you'll get better quality physical training um, and it's not going to it's not going to deteriorate their technical training. The only time it deteriorates their technical training is when they either have a low training age or they're just flat out out of shape. So if you got Jimmy who just took two months off because he wasn't booked for a fight and now we're in camp. Yeah, he's not a great um, candidate for putting SNC in before his technical training because he's not in shape. So it's going to beat the shit out of him no matter what. But if I've got Jimmy who's trained with me for the last 16 weeks in his off camp and now we're in a fight camp, he's got all the confidence in the world. He's like, bro, I could do SNC twice a day. I'll still be good to go because he's trained. He's well trained. Yep. Yep. He's well he's well adapted. Um, and what that means is it doesn't mean he's used to the barbell. It doesn't mean he's used to it means he's used to recovering from it. So there's a skill that's built. There is a time frame that gets built in to being able to recover. It's just like conditioning someone acutely. Right. You know, maybe in the first week of training, we're doing 90 second intervals. It takes them 45 seconds to recover, let's say 30 beats per minute on that type of interval. Six weeks later, magically, it only takes 20 seconds to recover 30 beats. That's conditioning. <laughs> well, when we train off season, we're also training the ability to be durable between those bouts, to be able to recover between those training bouts. So they do get more confident with being able to handle their S and C workload inside a camp because it's been a routine regimen out of camp. So those are things that we can establish out of camp that help training be more effective when we go into that in camp period. So all those scenarios kind of play a role in us deciding, are you going to do SNC twice a week or three times a week in camp? Are we going to do it pre-sparring on our sparring days at all? Or are we going to avoid our sparring days? Um, you know, honestly, when I look at making sure we're responsible about, you know, in terms of positioning things, not only the sparring, but also the live rounds with wrestling. I mean, those are the, those are the two that yeah. I kind of put up there. I have fighters that they don't do live sparring rounds until they're like three or four weeks out from the fight. There's, you know, I've got veterans that are like, I don't need to take those beatings nine weeks out from a fight. You know, yeah. I know how to fight. So it's like, I'll wait till it gets closer. And when I need to get that feel, that live touch, then I'll do that. But instead they're doing super hard live wrestling rounds, which can be just as rigorous. You're just not getting punched in the head. Um, and we need to be weary of that. We need to understand the taxation behind that and what that, recovery window or time frame needs to be post or pre. Beautiful. Yeah, beautiful. Um, but no, I think a lot of the, like you said, the 
piling on of the training and everything. I think it actually comes from like a place of like insecurity. We were talking about earlier, like being prepared and that confidence leads you to organize your schedule in such way. But like I said, the athlete that's like doing three days of sparring or like in the gym, six hours. And then they go to SNC after that. It's like, it's you're training that way because you know, you maybe don't know or because you don't want to get outworked and you think that work is the ultimate end game. Right. So like, I think understanding that is a huge area to like creating the best schedule. And then, like you said, figuring out what the specifics of that schedule are going to be. Yeah. That whole outwork thing, man, that really bit us in the ass over the years. It's like, no one ever thought like, I'm going to outsleep this guy. Or, I'm going to out eat this guy. Like I, we missed the boat on trying to instill those. And now it's like, I'm going to outwork this guy. Newsflash. Everybody works hard. Every single fighter that you'll find, they all work hard, right? Um, especially when they feel like they're behind the eight ball, they work even harder. Unfortunately, time has told us it's just not the the proven thing that really helps you overcome. Well, no, that's the coolest thing about watching because I help. So we know each other a little bit, but I also help coach wrestling at Fight Ready as well. So mm-hmm. I got to see Cejudo for his last couple camps. And that's what he does better than any athlete I've ever been around. It's not that he like he works crazy hard. But sure. he recover he recovers even harder, and it's yeah. so cool to see that he he's the perfect example of an athlete that recovers so damn hard that that makes him the cream of the crop. That makes him the triple C, and yeah. that guy versus everybody else that's just working hard. Yeah, no doubt about it. But yeah, honestly, Bo, that is that's all I got for you, Alex. Yeah. You got anything else? Well, that's I know Bo's lot. got Bo's got bath time here now, so we got <laughs> to make sure he gets back to that. Regiment <laughs> 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 bath time. Equally as important as regimenting. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you, Bo. Thanks for coming on to the podcast. Um, if people got to get in touch with you, how do they do that? Um, most people have good success. Just DMing me through you know Instagram, Bo.Sandoval, or on Twitter, I'm Oli Strength. Um, I, I'm slow sometimes. I get bogged in the weeds, but I really work hard to not leave anybody unanswered. I do get some some surprising ones. Um, you know, I'll send someone an answer to a question. You're like, wow, man, thanks for answering that. That was like three <laughs> months ago, but I appreciate you getting back to me. Um, so I will definitely get back to you. Sometimes they're slower than the others. Sometimes I'm immediate. You know, just depends on what we got going on. But love interacting and sharing and always willing to do so. Awesome. Well, we appreciate you. Uh, for all the listeners, please like, share, subscribe, do all the cool things. Let us become friends with your friends and talk to everybody and build that circle. Um, as always, this is Building a Fighter, Dr. Austin Shane. Alex Rubin. And Bo Sandoval, Bo Bathroom <laughs> Sandoval. <laughs> and we are out. Bye.